This is episode 140 of the Terms of Reference podcast. As soon as they have the capacity to invest in a mobile device, that's what people are investing in. Even if they're not already there, that's where they want to be. And so that's where we need to be prepared to communicate with them and to engage with them. This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. So imagine for a moment that you're a college student getting ready to spend a summer working internationally, maybe in a hotel in a tropical resort or as an eco-tour guide or maybe helping teach children in an orphanage. The options are almost limitless if you look hard enough. And this is exciting stuff. So now your bags are packed, you've said goodbye to mom and dad and you're on the plane. But when you land at your destination, turns out to be nothing at all like what you expected. And your passport and phone are taken from you. And you're locked in a hotel room, and rather than serving cocktails to high-end tourists, you find yourself being forced to clean fish or some other job. Now, I just painted a picture that, in reality, is fairly unlikely for a kid from the U.S. or Europe, because there are systems in place that vet employers, study abroad opportunities, and other other things like that to ensure that they're legit. Unfortunately, however, human trafficking and exploitation is still a reality for thousands and thousands of people around the world today. And often the go-to image of this horror is a young woman being forced into the sex trade. But exploitation happens in numerous other ways as well, in domestic work, in fisheries, in manual labor of all types. My guest for the 140th Terms of Reference podcast has spent a career combating human exploitation. Tara Dermott currently leads IOMX, which is the International Organization for Migration's campaign to encourage safe migration and public action to stop human trafficking and exploitation in the Asia-Pacific region. This campaign has reached more than 158 million people in less than two years and has helped not only shape the conversation around exploitation, but also helped many people out of it. I spoke with Tara in Bangkok. And hey there, before we jump into the show, just a quick reminder that if you like what you're hearing here on the Terms of Reference podcast, please take a minute right now to pause and give the show a review on iTunes or Google Play or whatever service that it is that you're, you're listening to, because it really does matter. And while you're at it, share this episode with your community so they can participate. And of course, if you never want to miss an episode, subscribe, because it's free. Now, on to the show with Tara. Hello, Tara. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Tara, I think that we have the privilege of actually sitting in the same country together. Is that right? This is true. Wow. I think we're even in the same city. So where, where are you, uh, just, just for everybody's awareness, where, where are you exactly are you sitting today? So right now I am sitting in the IOMX office in downtown Bangkok, which is surprisingly gloomy and rainy today. I know. Isn't it supposed to be the dry season right now? It is. And in fact, Stephen, I wondered if you sort of arranged this so that your listeners would be less jealous. <laughs> it's possible. It's it, We're recording this at the beginning of 2017 here. It's sort of almost mid-January. Um, yeah, and it's supposed to be, you know, this is the high tourist time. What's going on here? You are with an organization called IOMX. IOM is the International Organization for Migration. And why don't you tell us about what the X means? Give us a background and, and what is it you do? Sure. Well, so IOM, as the UN Migration Agency, believes that migration benefits all. So here at IOMX, we are supporting this overarching mission through encouraging safe migration and public action to stop exploitation and human trafficking. So the X, you know, it's a, a very visual way of sort of suggesting stop of exploitation. And the way that IOMX does this is that we leverage the power and popularity of media and technology to engage with young people across the Asia-Pacific region. Actually, Stephen, before I tell you a bit more about IOMX, I would like to give you a little bit of the background about how IOMX specifically came to be. Yeah, sure. I mean, on the website, you know, for the listeners who who pop over there, IOMX.org, you know, they're going to see USAID right next to your name, right next to your logo. Uh, how, yeah, why don't you give us the history on this? Sure. So actually, IOMX is the second incarnation of a campaign. Uh, we actually started as MTV Exit. So it was this really exciting partnership between USAID and MTV as in, you know, music television. I'm going to date myself. Is MTV, <laughs> is MTV still a thing? It is still around, but actually, <laughs> actually, it's funny you asked that. So a, a few years ago, it must have been uh, 2011 or 2012, when we were MTV Exit, 
uh, MTV underwent this huge rebranding because they had to remove the music television tagline from the logo because, of course, now it's largely sort of reality show. Mm. But when it was still music television, there were um, a couple of a couple of individuals working at MTV Europe who saw this, who learned about sort of human trafficking and saw this great opportunity to leverage the power of music and celebrity to disseminate information to young people who are, you know, at risk of being trafficked, at risk of sort of participating in the trafficking chain. So they saw this opportunity to enter the space and with the support first of Swedish CETA and then USAID, they were able to, to sort of pilot this model of a campaign um, and then grow it into the MTV Exit Foundation. So MTV Exit first moved out to, it started in Europe and then moved out to Asia in 2006. And it was over the course of sort of about eight years here in Asia that MTV Exit really developed the model that IOMX now uses. And it's about sort of moving beyond awareness raising to actually affecting behavior change through applying a communication for development method. One of the popular approaches under communication for development is behavior change communication. Uh, so applying this to the issue of human trafficking. And this is actually quite new, right? I mean, C4D, behavior change communication, has traditionally been in sort of the public health space, and that's where it really came into being. And there have been so many examples of where it's been used effectively. And, and MTV Exit really started something new. Before we go down the C4D conversation, which I think is going to be really interesting, what, what was the moment of transition? So, you know, MTV, you know, was there just sort of a natural progression where the arc of the original campaign closed and they said, look, we've, we've achieved what we need to achieve and now we need to move a different way? Or what's your understanding of, of why, why there was a shift to IOMX? Yeah, that's a great question. So my understanding is that in 2014, Viacom, which is the parent company for MTV, changed their CSR policy. And oh, the dreaded CSR policy. Yes. <laughs> and they wanted to focus more on what was relayed to me was an, an AB audience, right? So a current MTV audience or an audience that's likely to become an MTV audience. Whereas at that point, you know, MTV Exit was continuing to work quite closely with MTV Asia, which is based in Singapore, and then some other smaller MTV channels in some countries in the region. But the truth is, is that in order to really maximize the reach we had of populations, we were increasingly having to partner with free-to-air broadcasters. So we partnered with, you know, more than 30 free-to-air broadcasters across the region. And so in some ways, I think that MTV saw that we were, you know, we were communicating to an A and a B audience, but also increasingly a C, D, all the way to Z audience. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so we just weren't seen as being a good fit anymore. But what was remarkable about this is, you know, despite the fact that the private sector, you know, we often talk about the private sector is moving a lot more quickly than, than us in the, in the development sector. Um, so the decision came down very quickly and, and we essentially had sort of a, a couple of months to wrap everything up. But during that time, USAID, who had continued to be one of the core funders of the MTV Exit campaign, said, look, we really believe in this model we want to be able to continue to support the good work that's being done. You know, would it be possible to find a new home? Mm. And so we had a number of conversations and IOM ended up coming to the fore in this region as a really exciting new place for us. Obviously, an incredibly different organization from MTV, but the potential scaling of not just what we do, but how we do it, the change that could be made, you know, almost within one of the major counter-trafficking organizations globally, the sustainability factor was just, I think, really exciting for all of us. Mm. So there's all kinds of cool questions to be asked there. First, I'd, I'd love to just sort of throw on the table an outcome that you've seen. Yeah, you know, I know that you've been around for only a little while, but is there, you know, what's something tangible that's come out of the IOMX campaign as far as affecting trafficking on an individual level or on a, on a group level? Or what's something that you put out there? You're like, wow, we've, we've done this. Right. I guess before I 
get to responding directly to that. The thing that I'd like to highlight was that in shifting from MTV Exit to IOMX, we had this un- really unique program that a lot of that a lot of us don't have in implementing, especially long-term programs or you know sort of organizational activities. And that was to say what's working, what has worked, um, and and where do we see opportunities to switch things up and maybe retarget. And one of those areas was you know throughout MTV Exit. We put a lot of emphasis on impact assessments, right? And looking at where were we actually shifting levels of knowledge and attitudes and intended practices around the issue of human trafficking. So over the eight years that we were in Asia, um, you know, from, from sort of the beginning in 2006 through to 2014, uh, when we were considering making this change, we were able to see that we had really positively shifted levels of knowledge and awareness around human trafficking. Uh, The fact that it doesn't only happen to women and children, that it happens to men, women, boys, and girls, and that it happens across sectors, right? So that human trafficking happens for sexual exploitation, but also for forced labor. You know, we have it in our homes, you know, exploitation of domestic workers. It's it's really across industries. And, And we were happy to see that we had seen and obviously, you can't say that it's exclusive to MTV Exit activities, but, but MTV Exit certainly played a role in increasing the broad awareness. So in shifting to IOMX, we decided that rather than sort of reinventing that wheel or continuing with that discourse, we would take a sector-specific approach to increasing understanding of what trafficking looks like and how, you know, what we as individuals can do to prevent it or stop it, right? So and by sector-specific approach, you know, some of the sectors that we prioritized in the beginning included the fishing sector and domestic work is where we started. So to sort of bring it back to your initial question of, you know, what have we accomplished? Our, our very first year as IOMX, we produced this um, really exciting program. It was this drama called Prasanna. We partnered with so one of the most uh, well-known Thai um, actors. He's a little bit like the Johnny Depp of Thailand. Uh, his name is Ananda Everingham. Um, and he, he um, came on board to, to direct, um, to really work on the script and, and direct a, a short video, a short drama that he brought on sort of the voluntary participation of friends of his who are also really well-known Thai actors and, and the drama was about conveying to young people in this region that trafficking and exploitation is happening in the fishing industry. Now, creating a drama in and of itself is not, it's not groundbreaking. It's been done uh, for a long time. Mm-hmm. But the partnerships that we were able to forge around this, so, you know, this sort of, it was the creativity being led by really well-established Thai celebrities the Royal Thai government was, of course, an integral part of our development of this program and the launch of it. And then also partnering with, you know, Channel 7, uh, you know, free-to-air sort of terrestrial broadcaster here in Thailand to push it out, as well as digital partners, digital distribution agents, um, you know, and, and all of this was done for free. The distribution that they were providing, commitment to this program. And so, you know, that in and of itself, that being able to launch that together uh, within our first year, you know, 2015 of being a campaign was a huge victory because it's a it's a very it's a very sensitive subject. It's one that hits uh, very close to home. But we were we we're very proud of that. And, and one of the things that that served to do was to really drive sort of the recognizability of IOMX. And then as an offshoot to that, IOM as well, to young people in the region as a counter-trafficking actor. Um, so, you know, that... And this is something that those people would then, not only logo recognition or, or name recognition, they would be able to say, hey, I'm having a problem or someone else is having a problem, then they know where to go or... Well, exactly. So great. You're, you're taking me right to where I wanted to go. So that was just sort of the first program that put us on the map with this issue. We have since created a lot more communication material and content on this issue, targeting diverse audiences, whether it's aspirant migrants themselves coming from 
know, sort of Cambodia, Laos, rural Thailand, Myanmar, or if it is consumer populations in urban areas. We've been, we, that was our launch pad, but we've continued to engage in this space. Um, and then, you know, sort of in recent months, we had this amazing experience where a Cambodian man who was being exploited on a fishing boat contacted us. He managed to contact us via Facebook to our IOMX account from the Maldives. And, you know, he basically just reached out, said, this is my situation. I don't know who to contact. And then because IOMX is a part of IOM, you know, we're, we're a part of this huge machine that has been around for decades and we are responsive, right? So we were able to immediately reach out to our counterparts um, at the specific island that he was at, as well as in Cambodia to facilitate his return to Cambodia. Wow. That's, I mean, um, that, that's a, that's a direct yeah, and sorry, impact. Actually, yes. And, and sorry, just to correct quickly, not the Maldives, it was Marshall Island. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I think it's not from a communications perspective in general. And I think a lot of campaigns working for development can say that, you know, one of the, one of the biggest challenges all the time is to be able to make a direct linkage for, you know, someone being helped or the direct impact on an, on an individual's life from sort of the broader mass media work that we're doing. And so this was, this was an exciting time to be able to directly, you know, show the link and bring it full circle. That was really exciting for us. So, so take me here. It sounds like, you know, when MTV started this 10 years ago, it was probably, I guess, you know, 10 years ago was still 2006, 2007. You know, Facebook wasn't a thing. Twitter wasn't a thing, whatever. And now today, you know, IOM has the mantle and you're moving it forward. IOMX has, has the mantle. How is it different, right? So how, how is it breaking other ways that we're communicating or... Or do you view this as an innovative way because a UN agency, IOM, wouldn't normally interact with the sector in this way or using these tools? Great question. As you rightly pointed out, and, and actually, so MTV Exit moved here in 2006, but it actually started sort of 2002. And so a lot of what we were doing was television, right? Television, live events. We hosted a lot of concerts. And that, again, was to primarily in addition to kind of interacting with people at the community level was to generate more content for television. So again, when we had this opportunity to, to rethink the strategy for what we wanted to take forward, you know, we couldn't, you know, you can't help but notice, especially in Southeast Asia, the extremely rapid rate that young people, especially, um, but I mean, pretty much everyone is, is shifting the way that they consume information and interact with it, right? So mm-hmm. mobile phones and, and are leapfrogging, mobile phone ownership is leapfrogging television access. And so we also saw it as an opportunity to, to maybe be a bit more strategic with how we reach our target audiences. Now, obviously, this region is huge. I mean, the, the Asia-Pacific region for under the IOM regional office here in Bangkok is, is one of our largest globally. So it, it encompasses 27 missions and activities in 33 countries spanning from Iran to Vanuatu. So, you know, we, we have this huge expanse to work in. So that's um, like, just, just uh, for, for, to put that mm-hmm. in a number, well, that's like 3 billion people. Yeah, just about, I think so. And if you look at, you know, sort of media penetration, we know that I think mobile phone penetration is is over a hundred percent. Now, obviously, that when you dig down into that, it doesn't mean that everyone has them. It's been really important to us to think about not just where. Um, so, I guess let me just back it up. So, if you're thinking about designing our interventions, right? First, we take this sector specific approach. So, for example, with fishing. Uh, that helps us to then think about: Are we within fishing? There are the aspirant migrants themselves who come from that we know come from certain areas that are likely to end up in the fishing industry. So what they are, you know, their access to media and technology is incredibly different from even the sort of the migrants before them that have already made the journey and possibly been working as migrant workers for a while Just to sort of make this a bit more concrete. Uh, we did research recently in Cambodia in a province called Spai Rang, where we were looking at aspirant male migrants. So these were young men 
who expressed the interest to migrate overseas for work. And given their sort of lower socioeconomic levels and education levels, they're the kinds of guys who end up in the agricultural sector in Thailand, including in the fishing sector. And it was a relatively small sample size, but we found that, you know, only 3% of them actually had a mobile phone. Hmm. Interestingly, another organization that, that we interact with quite a bit here in Thailand has been doing research of current migrant workers, including those from Cambodia, and their access to mobile technology. And most of them have a mobile phone. And, and then similarly, IOM Cambodia has told us that their sort of, sort of anecdotal um, research that all of the, or the vast majority of the men that they have supported who have become victims of trafficking or exploitation in the fishing sector also have phones. So what this communicates to us is that as soon as they have the capacity to invest in a mobile device, that's what people are investing in. It's their what first investment, right? Because they know that this is their connection. Exactly. So if even if they're not already there, that's where they want to be. And so that's where we need to be prepared to communicate with them and to engage with them. But obviously, we're, we're thinking in the short term, we're thinking in the long term, uh, things that we have to adopt so a mixed media approach to communicating with our target populations and thinking about, are they still at home, sort of pre-departure, thinking about leaving, what's the information that they need, what's most relevant to them right now, and what's the best way of getting that information to them. Mm. And that's going to change really drastically from communicating with them when they're already in the country of destination uh, or when they're at sea. And, you know, and, and what's mind-blowing about this is, I mean, that's just sort of one potential target audience for our activities, right? That's not including the other key stakeholders in this, which are consumers of seafood products, boat owners, you know. I'm just starting to think about how you segment this out and it's overwhelming, right? It really is. But I mean, you know, again, and sort of to highlight the, the importance of C4D, you know, communication for development for us, it really does provide a framework by which we're thinking about all of this. And that in and of itself is, um, oh, I suppose I should clarify, you know, we're not just thinking about it. We're also sort of doing the, the research and the consultations that are necessary uh, to make sure that we're also not making assumptions about people's access to communications and, and what's the best way to interact with them, that we're really, you know, we're sort of getting in there and making sure that we're not wrong before we invest in creating you know, the content or the campaign to target these individuals. Mm. Give us a sense of how big is IOMX? I mean, is it you and another person who sit in an office and take care of these 3 billion people? Or um, <laughs> you know, what's the staffing look like? What's the, the you know, the, the tertiary and the, the secondary and tertiary levels of this look like? Right. So the IOMX team itself, we're a team of about 10 people right now, which is including a couple incredible interns. But yeah, and we're based here in Bangkok at the regional office. Uh, so we actually have our own space, which is quite nice. Open plan. Music tends to be playing because we really want to keep this sort of creative culture and a culture of teamwork. Uh, because the staff itself, we all have quite uh, diverse but incredibly valuable skill sets. So we have a digital team, and our digital team really consists of sort of um, the, the leader who is looking at the overarching digital engagement strategy, but also takes point in, in initiating a lot of our more innovative partnerships, primarily with the sort of tech sector. And then also we have a couple of colleagues who are focused more on creating tailored content for online. So whether that's, you know, videos or images and things that are used to disseminate information and encourage others to kind of continue sharing that. But then we also have a full-time communication for development specialist, and she heads up our research and learning. Um, and we've got sort of in-house graphic design capacity, communications and PR event organization, and then partnerships is incredibly important to everything that we do. So we do have someone who's full-time on partnerships and and I know the different organizations and, and even kind of offices kind of think of partnerships in different ways. For us, it's, it's less about 
business development and more around making sure that everything that we develop is done based on a participatory process, that it's helpful to the actors who are already in that space, you know, that we're not sort of reinventing or, but that we're actually adding to ongoing efforts. And because of this sector specific approach, the sort of the actors in the fishing sector are incredibly different from those domestic workers, um, you know, onto manufacturing or looking at sort of trafficking for sexual exploitation. Um, so we spend a lot of time engaging with very diverse partners mm. to do the that we do. Maybe I'm going to ask this tongue in cheek right now, but so you're talking about 10 people covers, covers three, uh, you know, a population about 3 billion. How do you go back to USAID or do you make the case when you know that there are things like Uber and Facebook and Google who have literally staff of thousands that are worried about how do we, you know, tweak our algorithm one little way to make sure that when somebody types in three letters, they're they're going to see Denver instead of you know Detroit. Their ability to communicate with these populations is extraordinarily, you know, the depth and the breadth is is so so much bigger than that. I guess the question that I'm I'm wondering is, is that where your partnerships go? Do you do you partner with these kinds of organizations to yeah. to increase that reach, increase that depth, and and really get out there? Or what does that look like? Yeah. So I guess there's sort of two ways that we, we've been able to secure the continued support from USAID in this regard. And, and the one way is, you know, now that our home is within IOM, IOM has a much larger footprint in this region than the most organizations. You know, I think sort of here in Thailand alone, there's I don't know, eight or nine offices similar in Myanmar. Um, so, so we're able to draw sort of especially when it comes to engaging with communities, engaging with populations who are most vulnerable to being exploited, really understanding the trafficking trends and, and importantly, the resources that are there that, that we can promote to people. Our colleagues at IOM country offices become incredibly vital to the work that we do. But when it comes to sort of our work with innovations and, and thinking about mass media, then yes, it's we we have to partner with industry. Um, so if we're thinking about, I've mentioned already a couple of times with referenced, you know, we continue to partner with media agencies, whether that's uh, television broadcasters or radio, you know, sort of more traditional media, or if it's sort of online, like we. The, the fishing launch that I mentioned, one of our partners was Baidu. So, so we are kind of partnering there to demonstrate to USAID sort of the, the value for investment that they receive, right? That, that we're not only pushing it out through IOM's broad networks, but we're able to push it out even further. And then, yeah, we, we do also partner with other sort of industry giants to be able to show that, and it's not even just about reach, you know, it's, it's also being able to show that we recognize that a lot of these sort of private sector partners, what they can add to our efforts is invaluable. And so if they're willing to engage with us, we need to try to accommodate that to the best of our ability. Mm. I'm just thinking out here in Asia, as you, you know, as well as I do, you know, the instant messenger line, it's called L-I-N-E, you know, which is the, the WhatsApp of Asia, but 10 times as big. Is that the kind of partnership that you would seek out where, you know, I, I could see them, you know, just a simple ad, a simple badge, a simple, you know, sticker, as they call them, to come out there that would, you know, either create awareness or whatnot. You'd suddenly have an audience of literally hundreds of millions of people. Is that even a conversation you are, are, are able to have? Will they answer your phone call? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's, in fact, we're actually pulling together a concept right now. I, I, I always love it when I, nice, excellent. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm totally, I'm totally ruining your marketing strategy. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, and you know, another um, agency that, that we're talking to is so, sort of similar as um, Telenor, right? So Telenor is a major telco. And they, in this region, have a number of, they support kind of uh, companies that are um, connecting people, um, especially migrant populations. So here in Thailand, Telenor runs DTAC, 
um, in Bangladesh. It's Grameen Phone. Anyways, we've started conversations with them to sort of look at areas where we can provide them with the content and the information that is valuable to, you know, a very strong client base for them. But then they would provide the vehicle to disseminate that. So we're still at early discussions, um, but I actually travel to Bangladesh next week where we're going to be starting, we're starting the initial sort of participatory planning of a, a new series, of, we call it the IOMX Roadshow, a new series of activities that will take place in Bangladesh. And Grameen Phone is one of the key partners that we'll be meeting with there because we're hoping that they will kind of come on board from the beginning and really take ownership over the campaign as far as making sure that what we're producing, uh, that we're not just trying, I guess one of the things we found is that the earlier in the process that you can bring partners on, the more meaningful the partnership is for both of you, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, by bringing Grameen Phone in to the discussions at the earliest stage, you know, not only will their technical expertise about, you know, who's consuming what on mobile technology, you know, if we're specifically targeting populations in, in specific districts, they can tell us more about, um, you know, they're the largest telco provider in Bangladesh, so they can tell us more about what that looks like from a dissemination perspective, and then hopefully not only help us to design our strategy, but carry it out. What's the tolerance for or the attention span of something like the Grameen Phone partnership? We, we've heard on other podcasts, specifically about other you know large organizations that are not focused full-time on the humanitarian sector or, or the development sector. There's a tendency to say, okay, hey, look, you know, this is a great project. We, you know, we'll, we'll help, and, and they either create an app or, or they put some resources behind this. But ultimately, it, it it peters out pretty quickly. Or, you know, looking at it as a multi-year, decades-long struggle isn't really on the agenda of somebody or an organization like Grameen Phone. Have you experienced any of that, or or is that something that's you haven't experienced at all? Honestly, one of the things I've found in my experience has been that it actually tends to be quite. Driven, it, it tends to be driven more by individuals, I think. So when we've mm-hmm. been able to forge partnerships with you know major companies, it's often because because one person at the right level of influence within their agency really cares about this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you can get that person, it's amazing because I mean, really, you can you can make magic happen. Right? Well, then you've got the champion. It becomes a part of the agenda. It becomes a part of the conversation. Um, but of course, those individuals also move. <laughs> and so it's not necessarily so sort of the duration of that can can fluctuate. But the thing that we found is because of our model of really diverse partnerships. So, you know, for example, if we partner with Garmin Phone or with other partnerships that we've had, it's not just about us and them. We're also bringing to the table, you know, our government counterparts, other sort of community-based organizations who are working with those populations, the I think the sense of, of responsibility and commitment tends to be a bit larger because because it's a little bit, I mean, it's hard to break up with one person, right? But it's it's a lot harder to break up with a group <laughs> of people. So so I think that can help with fostering that sense of commitment. And then also because we're a, a ultimately a you know a communications initiative, we bring a lot of high visibility to these partnerships, right. and okay. so that also and you know and it's it's true for sort of partners across sector. You know if we can have people publicly making commitments to counter trafficking, then I think we're more able to hold them to that commitment. Mm. I'm sensitive to our our, our listeners' uh, bandwidth for our conversation, even though it's fascinating. I want to take us in the direction of sort of what's the future look like for you. So, if you're you know you're sitting at your desk right now, what's the next two to five years look like? Is it chatbots? Is it you know you're you're going to have a, a massive team that's going to be you know sort of manning your social strategy and and engaging people that way? Is it uh, the, the ex- exact opposite, where it's you know more people on the ground, inter- you know, interacting through the the IOM machine, as you say, or what, what's that look like? That that's a great question, and I'm afraid my answer is might not be what you're expecting. But well, we on- like we love the unexpected <laughs> here. <laughs> so the actual subject of technology and innovation in the space of counter trafficking is really new. 
So ah, really, it's 2017. You think that, I mean, it, isn't that something where like communication it, 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 is, aren't, aren't you guys like the bleeding edge? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's the thing is that, so we actually, so IOM in partnership with Microsoft and, and other agencies organized the first regional conference on the role for technology for counter-trafficking efforts. And that took place in June 2015. And that was the first of its kind, right, where we brought together, you know, different agencies from the private sector and the public sector to talk about what kinds of technologies they had been developing or been applying to the work that they're doing. And it was it was really exciting because this isn't something that comes up all of the time. You know, I mean, I, I find myself as, you know, IOMX, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to position IOM at the forefront of thinking about these things, but it means that, you know, we're having to really go out to other development sectors and, and forums outside of the work that we do to learn what's happening there, what's happening there to try and to bring it back. And I think in part, this is just due to the extreme complexity of the process of human trafficking and all the different ways that it manifests. So for us, you know, I mean, I think when you listen to these great success stories from other sort of innovative applications of technologies for helping farmers or, you know, public health initiatives, it often can feel quite difficult to tie that directly to the work that we're doing. And I think that's because the more the as exciting as the adoption of technologies is um, for the populations that we're working with, it also brings with it these incredible risks. You know, I mean, traffickers are online; they're recruiting individuals. So you have fraudulent work sites popping up that are recruiting individuals and and you know taking them from their homes and and into exploitive situations. Um, you know, sort of the world of online child exploitation and those linkages to trafficking. Is a, is a whole other area. And so for us, it's newer and it's also quite sensitive. Mm-hmm. So I guess to bring it back to your question, what I'd like to see in the next few years is that IOMX has a lot more sort of peers and counterparts in this space that's saying, look, we've, we've been doing this, we've been trying this, this has worked, this hasn't worked. Um, but that it's, I guess, sort of the idea of technology and innovation is a bit more mainstreamed through through our counter-trafficking discussions, whether it's about prevention or prosecution or protection, that it's that it's more visible and more there. It's really interesting because you brought up fake news. You brought up fake websites, you know, that, that, are, that are put out by these things. And there's such a debate right now about fake news out there. How do you assure people who'd stumble upon you that you're legit? Is there a way that, is there a process? Is there something that you can do that that solidifies that for people? That's a great question. I mean, I suppose in some ways the the branding that we use, you know, so the affiliation with IOM, the affiliation with USAID, and then of course, and that's just sort of cross-cutting across all that we do, but then at a at a country level and a community level, the sort of the branding and endorsement that's there from from government counterparts and other, you know, sort of reputable and trusted agencies is is how we visibly try to have people trust our program. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I mean, sort of beyond the credibility of the programming, one of the things we found is that given the sensitive nature of trafficking, that by having sort of that clear endorsement of the content from very diverse and reputable partners, that it can also help community-based actors feel more confident about sharing it in public environments and, you know, that it's, um, it's safe to use and they, they won't get into trouble or anything like that. How much of what IOM, uh, IOMX is doing are you seeing crossover into IOM as an agency, other actors, other UN agencies, and then sort of throughout the community about the, the processes that you use, the, the, the techniques that you're using, the, the technology that you use? Are, are you seeing this trickle into where other programs are saying, hey, that, that's great. How do I put that in my program? Or how do I implement that strategy? Uh, and, and really the, the, the bottom line here is, you know, you call yourself an innovative program, but what ultimately we want to find is practices that work in order to bring them into and make them standard, right? Yeah. So how much do you how much do you see that crossover happening? 
Well, so actually, I'm going <laughs> to take this on in two parts. One is I've obviously sort of stressed from the top about the importance of C for D. And one of the things we found is that that really resonates with um, both our sort of with IOM more broadly, as well as with other partners. Um, you know, we've been doing, and I say we as the counter trafficking sector, awareness raising is something and information dissemination that we've been doing for decades, right? And so I think when people see that IOMX can provide them with very clear tools and frameworks that they can use to apply the development of, you know, of sort of strengthening the development of their own materials and outreach activities. That's become something that has made us quite popular. Uh, we get a lot of requests for materials, for facilitating trainings of organizational staff members. So that become a little bit of our sort of capacity development has become a little bit of our bread and butter. And it's something that makes us really happy because, because it's just a lot more sustainable. But I would also like to tell you about an exciting initiative that IOMX started and took forward, but has now been sort of adopted more broadly by IOM. And this was a partnership that we started with Microsoft. And in some ways, I think it ties together a number of the things that we've touched on throughout this conversation, especially with regard to bringing together a couple of influential individuals. So, before, before you tell us about it, could I could I just interrupt? You? I know that the memes going around right now uh, here in 2017 and late 2016, there's an awful lot of stuff going on that Microsoft is the new, the new old innovator, right, or the old new innovator. You know, where you, you used to hear about. Google and Facebook and Apple, and but now Microsoft has really bubbled up. Was that a, uh, one of the reasons for your partnership, or did did you grab onto that at all, or, or was there an existing relationship there? Did they approach you? I'm wondering, just wondering why Microsoft and, and how did that happen? Yeah, great question. Well, so actually, Microsoft, interestingly, has was one of the first sort of big tech companies to get involved in counter-trafficking efforts. And my direct sort of experience with this is a bit bit lacking from historically, but, but my broad understanding is that Microsoft in the U.S. started to, a number of years ago, uh, get involved with trying to address the trafficking for sexual exploitation of people. And so, like, for example, through their software like PhotoDNA, you know, they allow for agencies, including Interpol, to use that to be able to, you know, track children online, to, to catch perpetrators. And so Microsoft within the U.S., uh, a number of years ago was already funding research that was looking into the role of technology with trafficking, uh, again, specifically around trafficking for sexual exploitation. But so this was something that was kind of already, we knew that Microsoft had a history of engaging with counter-trafficking. But then here in Asia, and, and this sort of brings me back to my point of, of um, you know, just meeting the right person. I actually sat alongside someone from the Microsoft regional office in Singapore on a panel that was talking about the importance of public-private partnership. And so we ended up sort of getting a coffee and, and just, you know, I learned a bit more about what Microsoft was doing in the region, more specifically around you know, sort of youth engagement and building on sort of internet literacy and digital literacy with young people told them more about what IOMX is doing and IOM more broadly with counter-trafficking. And then luckily, he ended up reaching out to me again when he, when new leadership moved into uh, Microsoft Singapore, who had expressed interest in getting involved in counter-trafficking efforts here in Asia. So we were able to bring together um, sort of my colleagues from IOM, his new leadership at Microsoft, and, and basically through a conversation, this idea started to formulate, which was, you know, one of the challenges that IOM faces is that we are, um, I think I mentioned earlier that so we're one of the largest actors globally for counter-trafficking. If you look at stats, sort of, I think, over the past couple of years, IOM has been responsible for the identification and the support for the assisted uh, voluntary return of victims of trafficking. That's sort of, I think, one fluctuates between sort of one out of every six to one out of every nine formally identified victims globally. Uh, so this is a, a large part of what we do. 
And we do have funds available to do this, but the funds tend to support the emergency needs of these victims, right? So their emergency socio uh, sort of uh, their physical or, or mental needs, um, you know, their health needs, the needs that sort of can support to get them home. But then we don't have the capacity normally, the funding capacity to sort of help with longer reintegration support. And so when this challenge was expressed to Microsoft, they saw an opportunity where they could potentially help. Um, And so out of this came Six Degree, which was where IOMX and Microsoft worked together to build the world's first crowdfunding portal that enables individual users to give directly to individual victims of trafficking through a safe and secure way uh, that is very much subscribes to IOM's sort of privacy policies. Um, but it was a really exciting initiative because through, you know, using the stories that individuals wanted to tell of what, what their experiences, uh, but then through working with IOM case managers, sort of highlighting what their longer term needs were and what that cost would be. And then users can visit the site and give directly to these cases. So you literally uh, have Kickstarter for forced migration. Yeah. Or, or, or sorry, exploitation. I apologize. <laughs> pretty much. Uh, and, and what's... what's that's, that, that's fantastic. That's cool. I mean, I, I, I'm going to give that a badge of innovation for sure. I, I'm, I'm not sure anybody thought about crowdfunding in that way. I guess, you know, you, you see the Kivas, you see, you know, some of these other platforms for being able to... You know, like, for instance, give directly, right? Where it's an aggregator where you can take lots of funds and do that. But this brings it back to the individual level. I love it. Yeah. And I mean, what was, what was so you know great about it was that we were able to partner with Microsoft to build this. We, we launched it. And now IOM more broadly has, so Six Degree has become an independent program at IOM. And it continues to receive support from sort of IOM Geneva as well as Microsoft. Uh, so they're now at a point where it's been very much in a, in a pilot phase uh, to make sure that we've thought of, all the, thought of all the kinks, that it's fully sort of adapted to IOM systems. But now, you know, we're, we're in sort of the second phase of it and, and looking to scale it. And we hope that it will become a global tool for IOM to be able to support victims in the longer term around the world. It's really exciting on many levels. Um, and you should definitely, definitely check it out. Sixdegree.org. Absolutely. Tara, I am, unfortunately we're, you know, we've, we've been on our conversation for a while and I know the, the interweb has a, a very short attention span, <laughs> but there's two questions that I always ask the, you know, every guest here on the podcast for this innovation series. And the first one is you sit at a unique space. Each one of our guests sits at the unique space where you have, you know, you have all of these different sources of information and partners and opportunities. Like, just, I love the connection with the gentleman from Microsoft, where you know it was serendipity, right? Mm-hmm. That that ultimately yep. has has resulted in this this unique output and outcome for not only IOM but for these victims of exploitation. But how do we make those serendipitous moments happen? Who do you pay attention to? Are, are there Twitter feeds, there are blog posts, there are magazines, there, you know, like what are the sources of information that are your go-to that you think others might pay attention to? Yeah, so I follow the ICT Works blog. It's a great regular sort of source of inspiration to my inbox that tells me about different initiatives that are happening globally. Um, and it's actually, I think it's affiliated with the tech salon. It was started by sort of uh, Wayne Boda and now has been taken forward by FHI 360. Well, here in Bangkok, it's um, tech salon is the space that's been, uh, that's co-organized by FHI 360 and IREX. And I think I mentioned earlier, like I, you know, I have to be really kind of proactive from the counter-trafficking space to go to where people are talking about technology and innovation. And so I apply to join those forums as often as possible. But then a couple other individuals that I follow, uh, one is a guy named David Madden, who co-founded Avaz and Purpose, which are sort of Australia and New York-based creative agencies for change. And he has since, for personal reasons, moved to Myanmar and founded Tandiyar, which I believe means creative place. And so I highly recommend kind of following him on Twitter and following the work of his organization because 
it's really looking at, you know, in a place like Myanmar, where so much is changing so quickly, how do we stay across it? And how do we channel that energy for good? And then finally, another person that I follow is a guy named Mark Latinero, who is a researcher that I, I feel has been at the forefront of the role of technology and human trafficking. And I think he just brings really great perspective for my work. Uh, I got to see him speak at an event at one point, and he said that while his motto used to be, do no harm when designing human trafficking interventions, he now says, um, do as little harm as possible, because anytime you're in the space of innovations, there is some risk involved, but it's a risk worth taking. You mm. just need to be as, you know, sort of conscious and careful as possible. And, and um, so, yeah, I really value his contributions to the space. I really appreciate that. I feel like we've, we've lost the ability to be honest about risk, right? The final question is, this is a moment to geek out. This is a moment to give a shout out. Is there an innovation, a shiny object, a thing, a process, a person, uh, an event that you, you think everybody needs to know about that's on your radar right now that is sort of outside your, the, the exploitation, the trafficking world? I'm probably going to say what everyone says all the time, but I really feel like the adoption of mobile technology, I mean, I'm going to bring it back to that, you know, sort of the Cambodian fisherman example, Right. The fact that while only you know very few individuals who are most at risk of trafficking, maybe very few of them have access to mobile technology right now, they will. And the thought that you know we could be able to follow an individual along their journey and target them with the information that they need as they need it to better protect themselves, protect the people around them is unbelievably exciting. And so I suppose it's just more broadly, you know, the, the increase in the number of, of research that's looking into this, the increased sharing of our understanding of this is really exciting to me uh, because that's, I think that's certainly the future. Tara, thank you so much for taking part of your day today to, to speak with us. It's been a fantastic conversation. I wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes.